بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وجعل ما نتعلمه حجة لنا لا حجة علينا برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين We begin as always with the praise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by sending salutations upon the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam upon his family and upon his companions and we begin by asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to teach us what benefits us and to benefit us with what he teaches us and to make what we learn an evidence that will stand and be a witness for us on the day of judgment and not something that is going to be a witness against us on the day of judgment because all of the knowledge that we gain is going to be divided on the day of judgment into two things those things that are going to be a witness for us and those things that are going to stand against us what is going to stand for us is the beneficial knowledge that we acted upon and what is going to stand against us is the knowledge that has no benefit and the beneficial knowledge that we didn't act upon so we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right at the very beginning of this series to make this knowledge beneficial knowledge that we put into practice and if there's anything which you should know about the book Al-Arba'een by Al-Imam Al-Nawawi rahimahullahu ta'ala it is that this is a very very practical book this is a book that you will need in every single day of your life and there isn't going to be a day that goes by that you don't implement these ahadith and in fact you're going to find that insha'Allah there won't have been a day in your practicing life as a practicing Muslim that you haven't needed these hadith but insha'Allah by studying them you're going to be even more insha'Allah clear about them and be able to put them into practice and to use them even more and we also need to bear in mind that putting them into practice doesn't just mean us ourselves we learn we start to practice it ourselves and we use these ahadith as a means to call people to Islam. In fact, this explanation of the ahadith that I'm going to give to you today and inshallah throughout this series of lectures is actually particularly beloved to me because it's from the explanation of my Shaykh and indeed our Shaykh, Shaykh Al-Allama Abdul Muhsin Al Abbad Hafidahullah Ta'ala. And the Shaykh, I studied from him for a number of years, and he has this written explanation uh, of Al Arba'in and Nawawiyah Hafidahullah Ta'ala. And this was further explained by his son, our Shaykh Abdul Razak Al Abbad Hafidahullah Ta'ala, who explained this in an audio tape commenting on his father's work. And so one of the things that Sheikh Abdul Razak mentioned in his explanation, and I think this is particularly relevant, is that he said, there is no problem that exists in your community. There is no issue that you are suffering from in your community that cannot be fixed by the 40 hadith of Al-Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. In fact, there is no da'wah that you will give and there is no lesson that you will teach that does not include the principles that you will learn in these 40 hadith or slightly more than that of Al-Imam Al-Nawi rahimahullah ta'ala. So this is really a very, very important book. Al-Imam Al-Nawi, when he wrote this book, he commented on one of the reasons or he commented on some of the history behind the book. And he said, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, as a, a means of clarification to people, that I did not write this book because of the weak hadith that are narrated about the virtue of 40 hadith. 
i.e. my writing of this book was not out of a mistake in following a weak hadith which has been narrated from the Prophet that there is a virtue for memorizing 40 hadith and whoever memorizes 40 hadith will get such and such or such and such. This hadith is not correct from the Prophet But Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah he said, we, I wrote this book because of all of the hadith of the Prophet which encourage us to teach and to pass on the ahadith. From the greatest of those hadith is a hadith which is mutawatir, a hadith which has been narrated by so many companions that it is impossible for there to be in it any mistake or any, uh, 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 if you like, any error or any uh, either deliberate or uh, or uh, it sort of, either whether it deliberate or, or um, whether accidental, there can't be any error in it because it's narrated by so many people. And it was narrated by the Prophet wasallam in his khutbah on the uh, day of uh, the slaughter of the animals on the day of Hajj uh, in the masjid when the Prophet ﷺ spoke to the people and he said imra'an. May Allah brighten the face of a person He listens to what I say so he completely memorizes it and he has it in his heart and he understands it. And he, he relays it to the people just as he heard it from the Prophet And there are various different wordings of the hadith and from the wordings of the hadith is a statement of the Prophet Perhaps a person is carrying knowledge when he doesn't, he's not faqih, he doesn't understand the weight and the value of what he's carrying or he doesn't fully realize the weight of what he's carrying. And perhaps a person carries knowledge to someone who is more, has more understanding than he does. So this hadith is a dua of the Prophet to make the face bright of the one who listens to the hadith of the Prophet and narrates them to the people just like he heard them. Because perhaps a person who does so, he himself, perhaps he is not a great alim, perhaps he is not a great scholar of Islam, but perhaps he carries this hadith to a person who really understands it and implements it and that person makes a huge difference in his community. So the Imam al-Nawawi said, it is these ahadith, this is the reason why I collected it. And then he mentioned a number of people, a number of great scholars in Islam who prior to him had written about 40 hadith, a book of 40 hadith. But all of the prior or the previous efforts that had been done before Al-Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala had been done in specific areas of Islam. The 40 virtues of La ilaha illallah, 40 ahadith of jihad, 40 ahadith relating to this, 40 ahadith relating to that. Al-Imam al-Nawawi said, and this was a great, he mentioned the greatness of their intent. He said, this is a fantastic thing they did. May Allah be pleased with the one who had this intention. But I have a greater purpose behind my 40 hadith. He said, it's not just the 40 hadith of jihad, 40 hadith of la ilaha illallah, 40 hadith of the virtues of fasting, 40 hadith of the virtues of dua. He said, this is, may Allah be pleased with the one who did it for this reason. But me, I have a, a reason which is more important than this. And that is to gather 40 hadith from Jawami'ul Kalim, from those hadith which are the words are very, very few, but the meanings are vast. And Jawami'ul Kalim, it means that the Prophet ﷺ, he spoke with word, very few words, three or four words in a hadith, or 10 words, or 20 words, very, very few words. But those words contain meanings that books and volumes have been written about them. This is what we mean by Jawami ul Kalim. And this is from the miracles of the Prophet. 
that he could say two or three words and those two or three words could carry the weight of an entire book, an entire volume. And yet he would only say a few words. He would only say a handful of a handful of words. And Imam al-Nawi mentioned these are the ahadith which are mentioned by the scholars as the whole as being the ahadith that the whole religion of Islam rests upon them or that every other hadith in Islam returns back to them or the ahadith that the scholars said this hadith is a third of your religion or a half of your religion or a quarter of your religion there are various ahadith that a scholar would comment on it and say this hadith is a third of your religion or a scholar would comment on it and say, this hadith is half of your religion. Or a scholar would comment on it and say, this hadith is a quarter of your religion. Meaning that if you were to gather every single hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, you could broadly classify them under the shade of three or four hadith. A third of your religion, a quarter of your religion. Now, not all of the scholars agreed on which of these three hadith makes up the third or or which of the four make uh, uh, represent the quarter. Al-Imam al-Nawi gathered all of the ahadith which have been said about them. This is a third of your religion or this is a quarter of your religion or this hadith represents the whole of your religion or all of Islam is contained within this hadith or the hadith which people say the religion of Islam is built upon it. Or they say that all of Islam is found within this hadith. Or all of Islam comes back to this hadith. Whenever Al-Imam al-Nawawi found a great scholar of Islam make a comment like this, these are the ahadith that he included within his 40 ahadith. And so this is the virtue of these 40. And like Shaykh Abdul Razak Hafizahullah said, every problem in your community can be solved by the knowledge that is contained within these hadith. Not just in your practice, but in your da'wah, no longer are you going to be stuck to give a proof for something. Somebody comes in and he starts to do a bid'ah in the masjid, an innovation in the masjid. You're not going to be stuck anymore for a way to explain to him that this is not allowed in Islam. Because every single bid'ah in Islam has been refuted and spoken about within these ahadith. You're not going to find a new Muslim or a non-Muslim that you need to explain something about Islam to and you don't have a proof for it because you have these 40 ahadith or 40 plus ahadith. So it's an extremely important book. And like Al-Imam al-Nawawi said, many previous people have written about this, but his decision was not 40 hadith of aqidah, 40 hadith of uh, worship, 40 hadith on marriage, 40 hadith on good character. His were 40 hadith on the fundamentals of Islam. The whole of Islam resides within these ahadith. On top of that, you can see the virtue of the book in the fact that this book, there is almost no scholar in the world, except that when a new student comes to him and says, Sheikh, recommend me a book in hadith, he says, begin with the 40 hadith of Al-Imam al-Nawal. Almost every single curriculum, every single uh, school syllabus, every single scholar who teaches books to students, they recommend this is the first book that you begin with. And this is one of the books about which the ulama say there was written acceptance in the whole ummah for it. As in the fact that there are a number of books whereby you will not find someone from the easternmost part of the Muslim, where Muslims live to the west, throughout the history of Islam who did not love this book and recommend it to his students. And you will not find a student from the students of knowledge except that this book is at the very beginning and the most important of his beginning to learn. And you will not find a serious student who really can call himself a student of knowledge except that he's memorized this ahadith. This book really is one of those books that has been given acceptance by Allah on the earth. Like Sahih al-Bukhari. Even you go to the deviant sects and the deviant groups and they still teach Sahih al-Bukhari. Sahih al-Bukhari has acceptance in the whole Muslim ummah. 
And those people who don't accept it, those are those who have literally gone completely outside of Islam. Likewise, the 40 hadith of Imam and Nawawi rahimahullah are from those ahadith which have been given acceptance across the whole ummah. Like his book, Riyadh al-Salihin, uh, like this uh, book, uh, Al-Arba'in, that these, these, these books have been given, have been given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala acceptance on the earth. So every single scholar, every single student loves this book. There is no madhab, there is no maslak, there is no way inside of Islam that people don't teach this book. And the first and the foremost and the people at the front of this are the people of the sunnah. The people who are upon the aqidah of the salaf, the salaf al-salih. They are the first people who learn and teach and pass on the knowledge in this book. Because they are the ones who understand the value of what it contains. Not like those people who say and they narrate the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha in this book. That the one who innovates in this religion, something that is not from it, it will not be accepted from them. And they themselves in the very sitting are innovating. Those are those people who Allah Azza wa Jalla has put a lock on their hearts and a seal over their hearts and a cover over their eyes. That they are narrating the very hadith that is the essence of the sunnah and the hadith which Imam Ahmed said is a third of your religion. And they themselves are innovating in the gathering that they are doing. So the people of the sunnah, we don't just read these ahadith and let them pass over our heads. We read them, we implement them and we call people to practice them. And then we have patience over what happens to us when we do so. So this is also a very important part of the book. The only other thing I want to mention in introduction to the book, bearing in mind the time, is the number of ahadith that we will be studying and the number of ahadith that are in the book. Al-Imam now we called it this book uh, Al-Arba'un or Al-Arba'in, which means 40. But we have a, a, a feature of the Arabic language, which is that you can speak in vague terms or you can speak uh, in uh, a in a way that you are you are giving uh, you're sort of ignoring the remainder and the reason I mentioned this is there are actually 42 hadith in this book and Al-Imam now we knew that there were 42 it's not that he wrote the title and then you know added two at the end he knew that there were 42 but a feature of the Arabic language is that you can say 40 and mean 42 or 43 or 44 and that is just a feature of the eloquence of Arabic and it comes even in uh, statements of the companions specifically the statement of Anas and I think we covered this in the previous lecture regarding how long the Prophet <coughs> spent in Makkah and how long the Prophet spent in Medina when we did Shama'il and Nabi and if I'm not mistaken from the top of my head it was the hadith of Anas in which he said the Prophet ﷺ spent 10 years in Makkah and 10 years in Medina missing out 3 years in Makkah because this is a feature of the Arabic language the same reason Al-Imam Al-Nawi called it the 40 and he didn't call it the 42 the word 40 is a nice word it's a nice clean and simple word rather than saying the 42 hadith of Al-Imam Al-Nawi but we're not going to study 42 hadith because it's far too easy for you guys. In fact, we're going to study 50. Because along came Al-Imam Ibn Rajab Rahimahullahu Ta'ala and he added 8 hadith to the 42 hadith of Al-Imam Al-Nawawi when he explained the uh, 40 hadith of Al-Imam Al-Nawawi in a very valuable book, Jami' Al-Ulum Wal-Hikam, which is probably the best and the most comprehensive explanation of the 40 hadith of al-imam al-nawawi and we're going to be dipping into it frequently throughout our lesson so looking at this al-imam ibn rajab rahimahullah he came and he added eight hadith to make up 50 uh, and this 50 he said there are eight hadith that i feel fulfill the conditions of al-imam al-nawawi in being a half of your religion or a third of your religion or being based the whole religion is based upon it or the religion all goes back to it or it provides a fundamental principle which is present in every single part of Islam. He mentioned eight more that were not mentioned by Imam al-Nawawi and again the ulama of Islam they have accepted this eight 
and the vast majority of books when it has been printed, the 40 hadith, the eight of Ibn al-Rajab are added in there as an extra. So we're actually going to cover 50 hadith. At this moment in time, I'm not sure whether we're going to do it in four sessions or five. We have the option. We're planning originally to do it in four. If we struggle to do that, we can always do it inshallah in, in five inshallah and keep to the 10, 10, 10 plan uh, and just add another 10 on the end. If we manage, some hadith are very, very long and take a very long time to explain. Some are a little bit shorter. This explanation of Sheikh Abdul Muhsin, Hafidahullah, is not a detailed explanation. I want to give you the most important points. I want to give you the most important benefits. I don't want to sit and talk about a hadith for eight hours or nine hours or ten hours. I mean, just this hadith, there are books that are more than one volume in length written on this hadith alone. So we don't want to, you know, sort of go to that extent. We want to, when you, whenever you study a text for the first time, the ideal way to study it is just bullet points, really simple bullet points about the hadith, a few nice little quotes, just things to give you what you really need. Then what you can do is you can come back to the 40 hadith of, of Al-Imam al-Nawawi, for example, and you can study it from Jami' al-Ulum wal-Hikam by Ibn Rajab, rahimahullah. And you can go through, and this book is about that wide uh, in Arabic. In English, it would be double, roughly one and a half to double the size. So you're talking in English of a book that's probably four volumes, three to four volumes in length. And you can go through that. I don't know if it's been translated into English or not, but you can go through that in detail. And that can be like a, a supplement to the knowledge you've got. But you always need the bullet points. And the reason you need the bullet points is you need to know what you need to know the most important stuff. And when you're giving da'wah to people, you have a fraction of a second. Sometimes you just have one word, you have one sentence, and that's it. The person's going to switch off or walk away. And so you need to know the really important things, the things that are extremely valuable about these ahadith. So we're going to aim not just to mention one, two points and go, but to take about an hour, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour per hadith. And then from there, hopefully we'll give a good explanation of the hadith without giving you so much that you feel that you're sort of drowning in it. So 50 ahadith and inshallah ta'ala, uh, I'm expecting the first session, I'm going to, you know, sort of extend it by about 20 minutes to cover the late start, uh, inshallah ta'ala. So we have around about 35 minutes or so, 30 minutes or so. And inshallah ta'ala, we will cover the first hadith in that time. Last thing before we start the hadith, I would expect that every single person in this room and every single sister in the sister's section will be memorizing these 50 hadith in Arabic and in English. As a, a leniency towards you, I'll be relatively happy if you memorize at least 10 hadith from that hadith in Arabic but ideally I want people to memorize all of them. Now we've got at least a month's gap in between the different uh, lessons that are coming up. So we don't have, you have plenty of time. You have something like at least, you know, if you memorize one hadith every three days or two hadith a week, inshallah, you won't be far away by the end of the, you won't be far away by the end of the course having memorized them in English and Arabic. Minimum I expect, I don't expect anyone to have missed any in English. Maybe some of you who's just beginning in reading Arabic maybe struggle. So you maybe might aim for 10 or 15 or half, 25, inshallah, according to your ability. But the aim should be for everyone within this time, a little bit or double that time or triple the time that you're going to finish memorizing that hadith in Arabic and English. English is not enough. Because English is not what the Prophet ﷺ spoke. And it's not the evidence that gives people that qana'at, that gives people that certainty and that surety when you speak to them. When you read them the hadith in Arabic and then you explain it to them in English, this is better, inshallah, than simply reading the hadith uh, in English to somebody. But of course, knowing what the hadith actually is, is more important than knowing the Arabic. So it is more important you know it in English as an understanding, but then for you to really have that that power behind your dawah and that evidence 
you need to be able to present it to people in Arabic as well. And these ahadith are very, very short. Okay, they are very short. And you can shorten them. The very first hadith that we read, you can stick to simply, uh, you know, just the, the first couple of lines, like Imam al-Bukhari, Rahimahullah uh, Ta'ala, summarized it and didn't mention it in the full length at the beginning of his book. So at a minimum, we want you to try to, you know, cover a good number in Arabic and to make the intention that within these coming months, you are going to finish it in Arabic, regardless of your level. And you're going to finish it in English. And this will help your Arabic on, will help your understanding of the hadith, and it will provide you with a real understanding and a real ability to give the evidence for something. Bear in mind, I don't think you're going to come across an issue in your community or in your life that you can't use this hadith or one of these ahadith as an evidence for. So it would make sense to have memorized those few in Arabic, like you memorize the 10 surahs or the 20 surahs that you need, you know, like to, to have some variation in your prayer. Think of these as like the equivalent of the last 10 surahs of the Quran. Everybody memorizes them completely so that you have that ability to pass that information on. And inshallah ta'ala, what we're going to do is start by reading the hadith in Arabic and reading the uh, translation inshallah ta'ala uh, in English and then commenting on a few key bullet points about the hadith and maybe some key quotes uh, regarding the hadith from the sharh of our Shaykh Abdul Muhsin Al-Abbad Hafidhahullah Ta'ala and from the explanation of our Shaykh Abdul Razzaq Al-Abbad Hafidhahullah Ta'ala The first hadith An Amir Al-Mu'mineen Abi Hafsin Umar Ibn Al-Khattab Radiyallahu An Annahu Qal Sami'tu Rasulallahi Sallallahu Alayhi Wasallam Yaqul Innamal A'malu Binniyat وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ امْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ لِدُنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا أَوْ امْرَأَةٍ يَنْكِحُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِ الإمام النووي رحمه الله comments on this further and he says رواه إماما المحدثين أبو عبد الله محمد بن إسماعيل ابن إبراهيم ابن المغيرة ابن بردزبة البخاري وأبو الحسين مسلم ابن الحجاج ابن مسلم القشيري النيسابوري في صحيحيهما اللذين هما أصح الكتب المصنفة if we can memorize this bit from an Imam al-Nawi, that's also excellent because he's giving you a benefit. But let's cover this in English. An Amir al-Mu'mineen Abi Hafsin Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an from the chief of the believers, the leader of the believers, Abu Hafs Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an that he said, I heard the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say actions are only judged according to intentions and everyone will have or every person will have what they intended. So whoever their hijrah is to Allah and His Messenger, their hijrah is to Allah and His Messenger. I, their hijrah is rewarded or is considered to be to Allah and His Messenger. And whoever his hijrah is for the sake of something in the worldly life, some sort of business that he gains, or a woman that he marries, then his hijrah is considered to be for what he has made hijrah for. And Imam al-Nawi said this was narrated by the two great Imams of the Muhaddithin, Abu Abdullah, Muhammad ibn Ismail, Muhammad the Abu Abdullah, Muhammad ibn Ismail ibn Ibrahim ibn al-Mughirah ibn Bardazbah al-Bukhari So this is narrated by the two great Imams the first one being Abu Abdullah Abu Abdullah Muhammad ibn Ismail ibn Ibrahim ibn al-Mughirah ibn Bardazbah al-Bukhari and Abu al-Husayn Muslim ibn al-Hajjaj 
Ibn Muslim Al-Qushayri Al-Naysaburi. There's those are the full names of Al-Imam Bukhari and Al-Imam Muslim. In their two Sahih books, Sahih Al-Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, the two books which are the most authentic of the any two books that have been written, i.e. of all of the books that have been written, these are the two most authentic books that have been written. As for the Quran, the Quran is the speech of Allah and it is not created, so it's not counted amongst the books which have been authored because the Quran is the speech of Allah Azza wa Jal and it is not created and it is not something which was authored like books are authored, something that Allah Azza wa Jal spoke. So as for the authored, written, created books, then these two books are the most authentic of them. First point, point number one that we need to know is that this hadith is reported by both Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And I'm sure all of you know that this is the very first hadith in Sahih Al-Bukhari. And one of the interesting uh, one of the interesting things about this being the first hadith in Sahih Al-Bukhari is that Al-Bukhari did not put it in its own chapter. He put it within the chapter which he began his book with talking about revelation descending upon and how revelation began to the Prophet ﷺ. And then he began with this hadith or a shortened version of this hadith. Many, many of the scholars, they spoke, why did Al-Imam al-Bukhari mention this hadith within this chapter when this hadith seemingly does not have any relation to the chapter? Again, the short answer is that this hadith has a relation to every single topic of fiqh. Al-Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he has a statement saying, this hadith enters within 70 or falls within 70 topics of fiqh. And it is a third of your religion. This hadith falls within 70 chapters of fiqh. 70 chapters of fiqh and it is a third of the religion of Islam. What does Imam al-Shafi'i mean that this hadith falls within 70 chapters of fiqh? He doesn't mean exactly 70 but he means that it falls within many 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 chapters of fiqh. I, every chapter of fiqh, wudu, salah, nikah, buying and selling, divorce, or every single, you name a chapter of fiqh, you name any chapter from the chapters of fiqh, any topic from the topics of fiqh, and you will find that this hadith is the first and the most relevant hadith in the chapter. Because every single thing in Islam begins with your intention. And it is a third of your religion. So it's no, this is why Imam al-Bukhari mentions this hadith as the first hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari. Yes, it has no relation to the descending of the, the, the revelation to the Prophet ﷺ and how that began. Except that every single act that a Muslim does begins with intention. And it's like Imam al-Bukhari is saying that every single thing that I do and every single thing you do and you reading this book and me writing this book is built upon our intention. This is why he mentioned it right at the beginning. And we're going to hear in a moment when we come to the second hadith that Imam Muslim began with a different hadith, his, his uh, Sahih. But Imam al-Bukhari, he began with this. And he was not the first person to begin with this. Many, many scholars preceded him who began their books with this hadith. In fact, many scholars who began their books with the same two hadith Imam al-Nawawi begins his 40 hadith with. So it's very important. We see this is narrated by Al-Imam al-Bukhari at the very beginning of his book. And at this point, it's worth noting that there is a particular strangeness in this hadith from a hadith point of view. And that is that this hadith is what we call gharib. It's a hadith that is narrated by only one companion. And from that companion, only one tabi'i. And from that Tabi'i, only one person, and so on, and then it spreads out after that. 
So Sheikh Abdul Muhsin he says, وَقَدْ تَفَرَّدَ بِرِوَايَتِهِ عَنْ عُمَرَ الْقَمَةِ إِبْنُ وَقَاسِ إِبْنُ وَقَاسٍ الْلَيْثِ So the only person who narrated this hadith from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was Umar. And the only person who narrated this from Umar was Al-Qama ibn Waqqas al-Layfi. And the only person who narrated this from Al-Qama was Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi. And the only person who narrated this from Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi was Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari rahimallahu al-jami'ah. May Allah have mercy on all of them. And then from Yahya, many, many, many people took it from the Imam of Hadith, Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Ansari, rahimahullah ta'ala. So this has a strangeness in it. And one of the strange things is that Al-Imam al-Bukhari began his, his book of Hadith with a Hadith of this nature and he concluded it with the same kind of Hadith, Kalimatan. This hadith, kalimatan uh, habibatan ila rahman that the, this hadith of uh, two words that are beloved to ar-Rahman, that are light on the tongue and that are heavy on the scales. And this hadith at the end of Sahih al-Bukhari is also of this nature. It's also a hadith that has one person narrating from one person and, and then, you know, later on it ends up spreading out. This is important for us for a number of reasons. It's important for us, especially with regard to Sahih al-Bukhari for two reasons. The first one is, it is an evidence against those people who refuse to accept the ahadith which are ahad, the ahadith which are narrated without multiple chains. And we don't want to get too much into this, but there is a group of innovators and, and an innovated sect, a group of innovated sects, who refuse to accept to one degree or another a hadith that are narrated in this way. So Al-Imam al-Bukhari, it's like he's delivering them a slap in the face, a metaphorical slap in the face. He's saying to them that you people don't accept the ahadith that are narrated in this way and I am beginning the most authentic book on the face of this earth after the book of Allah Azza wa Jal with a hadith like this and I'm concluding it with a hadith like this. On top of this, it's especially important because Al-Imam al-Bukhari and subhanAllah, this is the fiqh of Al-Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah. He began with the beginning and he ended with the end. He began by talking about the very thing that begins every act of worship and he concluded his book with the end of the acts of worship when the acts of worship are weighed on the scales on the day of judgment. So he began with the beginning and he ended with the end. He began with the very first thing you need in doing a good deed and he ended with the deeds being weighed on the day of judgment. And this is the fiqh of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari rahimahullahu ta'ala. So this is the first point that we mentioned this particular strangeness in the hadith and the fact that this hadith is narrated by Al-Imam Al-Bukhari and Al-Imam Muslim uh, Rahimahumullahu Ta'ala and we mentioned that Al-Imam Al-Nawawi Rahimahullahu Ta'ala he begins this his book with this hadith as Al-Imam Al-Bukhari did and as many of the scholars before them uh, did uh, as well and in fact uh, there are several quotes of the scholars saying that the Salaf in general the pious predecessors in general, they used to love to begin their books with this hadith. Why is it so important to begin your book with this hadith? Why is it so important to disregard the order of your book and the content of your book to put this hadith first? We said you need this hadith in every single thing that you do. And it's like Imam al-Bukhari is saying, you people who read this book Sahih al-Bukhari when you read this book if you want to see your reading of this book hold anything in the sight of Allah on the day of judgment you need your intention to be right and it's like he's saying if I want this book to count anything for me on the day of judgment my intention has to be right so when you write or when you read then you need this intention to be there for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Al-Imam ibn Rajab 
rahimahullah, he said, this hadith is one of the hadith upon which the whole of Islam is built. And Imam al-Shafi'i said, this hadith is a third of knowledge and it is or it, it, it uh, is contained within or found within 70 chapters of fiqh. And Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala said, the, fo- the foundations of Islam are built upon three hadith. This hadith of Umar, Al-A'malu bin Niyat, the hadith of Aisha, whoever innovates in this religion of ours, something that is not from it, it will be rejected. And the hadith of An-Nu'man ibn Bashir, the halal is clear and the haram is clear. Now I just want you to stop for a moment and think, who is Al-Imam Ahmed? You have Al-Imam al-Shafi'i saying a third of your religion. But just bear a set for a second in mind, who is Al-Imam Ahmed? What is Al-Imam Ahmed's most famous book? The Musnad. The Musnad has something like, I can't remember how many is it printed in, 40 volumes or a little bit more than that. Like it is the one of the biggest and possibly the biggest printed collection of hadith that we have. It is absolutely huge. And Imam Ahmed, it was said, had memorized over one million hadith. And Imam Ahmed says, the whole of all of those million return to three hadith. Every single one of them goes back to three hadith. Innamal a'malu bin That your actions are according to your intentions. And the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, that whoever innovates something in this religion of ours will have it rejected. And the hadith of An-Nu'man ibn Bashir, the halal is clear and the haram is clear. All of them are in the 40 hadith of Al-Imam al-Nawal. But just to reflect on someone who is said has memorized alfa alfi hadith, a thousand by a thousand, one million hadith. And it's said that he has produced one of the biggest collection of narrations of the Prophet ﷺ that exists in this ummah. And certainly in terms of printed hadith, it is probably the biggest or one of the biggest printed collections of hadith that we have. And of all of that, he says, the whole of the religion is found in three hadith. And Imam al-Shafi'i supported this by saying, or preceded him by this in this by saying, that this is a third of your religion. How does that work? Basically, the whole of the religion is what? is doing what Allah has told you to do and avoiding what Allah has prohibited you to do, the halal and the haram. Where do we find this? In the hadith of An-Nu'man ibn Bashir. The whole of the religion is doing what Allah has told you to do, avoiding what Allah has made prohibited for you and avoiding the doubtful matters. This is the whole of Islam. But that will not be accepted from you unless you have two things, the right intention and that your action is according to the sunnah of the Prophet So this is how it is a third of your religion. All of your religion is doing the halal, avoiding the haram, keeping away from doubtful matters, and you do this with the right intention and in accordance with the sunnah of the Prophet and that is the statement of Imam Ahmed, that the entire of the religion falls within three uh, within three uh, ahadith. Now we begin to look at the actual text of the hadith itself. Uh, <coughs> First of all, Amir al-Mu'mineen Abi Hafs. Abu Hafs is the kunya of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Abu Hafs is the kunya and the kunya is a name like a nickname that is used for people that is preceded for a man by Abu and for a woman by Um. And it is essentially usually referring to their children. However, for Umar radiallahu an, Umar is an example of a kunya that does not refer to his children because Umar did not have a child called Hafs. Abu Hafs meaning the father of Hafs. And he shares this in a number with a number of people. Abu Bakr did not have a child called Bakr. Abu Huraira did not have a child called Huraira, and Al-Imam al-Nawawi Abu Zakariya did not have a child called Zakariya because Al-Imam al-Nawawi died and he did not get married. It's narrated that he said, I forgot. SubhanAllah. <laughs> I became busy with seeking knowledge and I forgot to get married. Allahu Adam. But uh, Al-Imam al-Nawawi was Abu Zakariya and he did not have a child called Zakariya. 
and this shows you the permissibility of taking a kunya before you get married taking a kunya that doesn't relate to your children say I'm Abu Abdullah and I have Abu Ab and I have three children Abdul Rahman and Muhammad and Ahmed and I'm Abu Abdullah why not Abu Hafs was Umar and he did not have a child called Hafs Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an the second best of all of the companions after Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhuma wa ardahuma he said I heard and this is particularly important in the science of hadith he didn't learn this from another companion he didn't take this from Abu Huraira he didn't learn this from Aisha he heard the Prophet say specifically actions are only innama and innama in Arabic it means only it doesn't just mean emphasis it means there is no other way than this so you can circle innama in Arabic, it's not really translated in English except for only in brackets or something like that. But innama in Arabic means al-hasr. It means there is no other thing but this. It is basically restricting what is mentioned and saying that there isn't any other way than this. Al-a'mal, actions. The scholars talk about actions in this hadith in two different ways. Some of the scholars, they said actions here means actions of worship. Actions of worship. Okay, so that's one opinion. That al-a'mal here, the actions here are actions of worship. But the correct opinion or the stronger opinion is that all actions are here. All actions are here. So we're even judged in our niyyah when we sleep and when we eat and when we go shopping, when we drink water and eat food. Are we judged by our intention? Let's see, let me put that to you guys. How can we understand? Clearly, it's obvious. Everyone understands if it's only referring to the actions you do to come close to Allah, as in, you know, your prayer and your salah, your siyam, your zakah, then it's clear your actions are according to your intentions. But how is it that some of the scholars widen this to include every single thing that you do? So the brother said, your intention can be made in these general actions that I'm eating and I'm eating for the sake of becoming strong to worship Allah. MashaAllah, tabarakAllah, uh, that is an excellent answer. And that's exactly the answer that the scholars of Islam, they give. That your general actions with the right niyyah are also judged according to your niyyah. So for example, if you're just drinking for the sake of drinking, Bismillah, drinking away for the sake of drinking, then you don't get any reward for that. But if you have the niyyah that I'm drinking for the sake of getting strong, for the sake of remaining healthy, so that I can worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so that I don't get sick, so that I can remain strong in the worship of Allah, you will be rewarded for that drinking. Ya Ikhwan, how much do we spend our time with things that have no ajr in them at all? How much are we, we sleep, subhanAllah, some of us sleep for half of our lives. Some of us sleep for a third of our lives. The least of us sleep for a quarter of our lives. Add to that the time you spend in the bathroom. Add to that the time you spend eating. Add to that the time you spend, you know, subhanAllah, one by one by one. Probably three quarters of your life. Maybe more than that is spent plus working time that you don't spend. You're talking about 95% of your life being spent outside of the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You need to get that 95% to be part of your ibadah. How do you do it? You keep in your intention. Oh Allah, when I'm working, I'm working to put food in the, in the, in the mouth of my family. And the Prophet ﷺ said that this is a sadaqah, an ibadah, to put food and putting the food that you put in the wife of your mouth is sadaqah, is a charity. So you're, you're keeping in your mind this istihbar, this keeping in your mind. This is what we call al-ihtisab, keeping in your mind a desire for reward or an intention to get rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you go to sleep early for the sake of waking up for Qiyam al-Layl, your whole sleep is ibadah. 
When you eat for the sake of being strong, for the sake of Allah, your whole, your whole eating time is ibadah. When a sister's in the house and she's cleaning the house and she's spending that time cleaning and you know she's washing up and she's tidying everything up and she's ironing, she's doing all those things, she thinks, my whole day is spent in this. Where is my ajr? If you're doing this because the Prophet ﷺ said that about keeping your husband's house and about protecting and preserving your husband's household and about having responsibility for the household and about being asked about that on the day of judgment, then your hoovering is ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not the action of hoovering that is ibadah, but it's your intention that is ibadah. So it's not the, it's not the fact that sleeping is ibadah, but it's your intention when you sleep that makes your sleep ibadah. So in reality, every single action comes into this. Actions are only by intentions. And this word binniyat, it means biniyatuha. As in, or biniyatiha, by the intentions of those actions, not the intentions of something else, but the intentions of the actions that you do. So the intention that relates to the action. And there is a missing word here um, because it just says actions are by intentions, i.e., actions are rewarded by intentions, actions are judged by intentions, actions are according to intentions, actions are based on intentions, actions are considered as being valid or invalid depending on the intention that's the missing word here and in fact all of those words are suitable words to use you could use any of them actions are judged by intentions actions are rewarded by intentions actions are considered to be valid or invalid depending on intentions all of these things are contained within the arabic and for every person they will get the reward of what they intended. Now, some people might say this is a repetition, <coughs> right? The first sentence is repeated again a different way. It's not. The two are very different, or the two are at least significantly different. The first one is saying that actions are considered to be valid or invalid depending on intention. And the second one is saying that a person's reward or a person's punishment, their great reward or the lack of their reward or the reduction of their reward is also based on their intention. What do we mean by intention? <coughs> Very important question. What do we mean by intention? What do we mean by this concept of intention? Intention means two things to two different groups of people. And for us, we need both. To the scholars of Aqidah, of the, the creed and the scholars of theology and if you like uh, the fundamentals of the religion niya is the question of who you are worshipping and who you are doing your worship for i.e. is it for Allah or is it for other than Allah so to the scholar of aqidah scholar of Islamic theology of creed your niya is about who you are doing your worship for. Distinguishing between whether you're doing it for Allah or whether you're doing it for someone other than Allah. For the scholars of fiqh, niyyah is distinguishing between two different types of actions. For example, between the fard and the fard. Dhuhr and asr. Both are identical. Right? Dhuhr and Asr are both identical. Whether you're traveling or whether you're not traveling, Dhuhr and Asr are exactly identical. Raka'ah for Raka'ah. What makes Dhuhr different from Asr? Your intention. The difference between the Fard and the Sunnah. The Zakah that you give and the Sadaqah that you give. They're both wealth that you have and you give to the poor and the needy. What's the difference between them? Your intention. Or the difference between an ada, between a, a, a custom or a culture, and the difference between an act of worship. Like those people who maybe, for example, they keep their thobe short out of a cultural reason. I just came back from Morocco, and in Morocco, everybody wears their thobe practicing or non-practicing above the ankle. I think if you saw a Moroccan Jew, they would have their thobe above 
their ankle. And there are quite some, a number of Jews in, in Morocco. I think they would still have their thobe above their ankle. Why is a Muslim man rewarded for having his thobe above his ankle? And that Jewish Moroccan is not rewarded for having his thobe above his ankle. The niya distinguishes between custom and between the sunnah of the Prophet How many women, and, and subhanAllah, you know, recently I was in the Saudi embassy getting a visa. Not a nice experience. And subhanAllah, there was a lady there who was completely, she was coming for a visa and she was completely with her hair out, makeup, regular Western clothes. And she happened to give her ID to the lady who was serving her. And just as she, she passed, the, it was a very small office, she passed her ID. In her ID, she wore full hijab. You have to ask your question, what makes these ladies in Saudi Arabia wear niqab? Women in this country wear niqab, they suffer for it, subhanAllah. Why would, why would a woman in Saudi Arabia wear niqab? She comes to England and she puts her makeup on and her hair's all out. Because that niqab for her is a culture. It's a custom. It's got nothing to do with the deen. Say, why do you wear niqab in Saudi? Because it's aib if I don't wear niqab in Saudi. It's against our culture. But in England, no, 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 nobody minds. It's not done for religion. So in the, the fuqaha, it distinguishes between customs and between religious acts. In this hadith, all of them are covered. So that your niyyah is for Allah alone. And on top of that, not only is your niyyah for Allah alone, but your niyyah in the different actions. Is it sunnah? Is it fard? Is it a custom? Is it an act of worship that distinguishes? The niyyah that makes you get rewarded for going to sleep. That's also included within the hadith. And then the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he gives an example to clarify this to you, to, to, to drill this example home. He gives you a clear and a concise example. He gives you the example. So whoever makes hijrah, and it's only an example. It's not saying this hadith is only relating to the hijrah. He's giving you an example that you can use to apply to whatever you do. And this is from the great methods of teaching of the Prophet that he gives an example to clarify what he said. So whoever's hijrah is for Allah and his messenger, the reward, again the word isn't mentioned but we understand from this, the reward or the action is judged or the action is interpreted or considered to be hijrah for Allah and his messenger. And whoever their hijrah is for the sake of dun the dunya, money, business. You know, I came from Makkah to Medina. Hijrah is to leave a place of secure, a place of insecurity, and move to a place of security, or to leave from a place of disbelief and to move to a country uh, of uh, where Islam is practiced. And Hijrah is will exist until the day of judgment. However, the Hijrah that does not exist is the Hijrah from Makkah to Medina. This has been cancelled out. With the hijrah, with the, the conquest of Makkah, there is no more hijrah from Makkah to Medina, but there remains hijrah from the lands of disbelief to the lands of belief, from the places of insecurity to the places of security. The one whose hijrah, his intention was for it to be for Allah and His Messenger, وسلم, then that is what he is judged as having done, that is what is recorded for him. Whoever did it for the dunya, for business, or for a marriage, so he's a businessman or he's going for an engagement, then the Prophet said his hijrah will be for what he made hijrah for. Couple of points in this. Firstly, a lot of people narrate regarding this, that this hadith is narrated regarding uh, Um Qais, a person who went to marry Um Qais. This hadith is not authentic, so we don't say that this hadith was revealed because of a person who went from Makkah to Medina to marry Um Qais, as this hadith is not authentic. Why did the Prophet ﷺ go to great lengths to mention the Hijrah and to mention Allah and His Messenger and then to mention the dunya and to mention a woman and then he says his Hijrah is for whatever he made Hijrah for. The reason he says whatever and he doesn't say his Hijrah is for the dunya, like it's not repeated like it is the first time. The first time it is Allah and His Messenger, Allah and His Messenger. Dunya, woman, whatever he made Hijrah for. Two reasons. One is to 
take away from or to uh, what they call uh, to lower, you know, to sort of to, to really belittle what he's done, to really belittle and to really look at it in a foul and a terrible way, to turn around and to say whatever filthy, stupid, pathetic thing he made hijrah for, let him have it. That's the first understanding of this. It's to take away to really you know to really have some humiliation and some belittling of that reason that a person would leave such a huge ibadah if it was for whatever he did it for it's like you don't even mention the thing that he did it for to belittle that individual and the second is so that it covers more than just the dunya and more than just marriage so it's saying that whatever he made hijrah for the dunya marriage a job a passport whatever he made hijrah for his hijrah is for what he made hijrah for. He gets the reward of what he made hijrah for. So this is also important. We'll just conclude very quickly uh, our understanding of uh, this uh, hadith by looking at the benefits that the Shaykh um, uh, mentions regarding uh, this. Uh, first of all, he says that intention, the place of the intention is in the heart. And that speaking out the intention out loud is a bid'ah. And it is not permissible for a person to speak out the intention for any single thing that he does. We all know what we're talking about. Oh Allah, I'm standing here to pray in front of you facing the qibla behind this imam to pray for rakah at the time of dhuhr on Wednesday. Seeking your face alone and in accordance with the sun. We all know how it is. This is a bid'ah. Khabitha. It's a filthy innovation that is not from the sunnah of the Prophet I saw a man in Medina, subhanAllah, he missed the first raka'ah with the Imam in a prayer because he was making his intention. And he kept making a mistake and he was doing it in Urdu. That was the, that, you know, hashafan wa su'akila. Are you selling me bad dates and cheating me on the weight? <laughs> Subhanallah, he was doing it in Urdu. Oh Allah, I'm standing for And he started then. Astaghfirullah. Oh Allah, I'm standing for And then, Wallahi wa Rabbil Kaaba, he missed the first rak'ah with the Imam. Subhanallah. It is not permissible for a person to mention their intention aloud except for Hajj and Umrah. Because there is a sunnah in this. And even in Hajj and Umrah, it's not permissible for them to say, Oh Allah, I'm making Hajj to the Kaaba, trying going to travel on the Medina road from Dhul Hulayfa, and I'm going to make my intention and I'm going to wear my ihram and I'm not going to cut my nails and I'm not going to cut my hair. And I'm this is not permissible. But for him to say, Labbaik Allahumma Umrah, Oh Allah, I answer your call making Umrah, Oh Allah, I answer your call making Hajj. O oh Allah, I answer your call making Hajj and Umrah together. This is the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And there is no other action in this that is uh, that 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 is for it is permissible for them uh, to do. From the benefits that the Prophet that, that uh, the Sheikh uh, took from the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is first of all that there is no action that is considered or accepted in Islam without intention. Second of all, that actions are considered and are judged and are rewarded by the intention. Thirdly, that the reward of the person who is doing his action is going to be given to him on a level according to what he intended. He may get nothing, he may get something, he may get everything. Fourth, the use of examples to teach people. Fifth, the virtue of the hijrah, because the Prophet ﷺ used it as an example, and uh, it is mentioned in Sahih Muslim from the hadith of Amr ibn al-As, that the Prophet ﷺ said, do you not know that Islam, or Islam removes or wipes out what came before it, and that the hijrah wipes out what came before it, and that the hajj wipes out what came before it. The sixth benefit that the Shaykh mentions is that a person is... Uh, either rewarded or is given sin or is or falls into haram or is prohibited from some good because of their intention seventh or that the intention uh, is uh, according to uh, or is including within that are the means that you do to achieve something so that the means you do to achieve something must be uh, must be permissible 
And also that includes that it must be in accordance with the Sunnah of the Prophet and that it's not just enough for a person to have uh, a good intention and this is going to come in uh, the uh, later hadith. And it's also included in this that something which is at a level of mere permissibility, at a basic level of permissibility, can become an act of worship by having this ihtisab, by thinking of the reason behind it. And finally, the Shaykh says that uh, uh, that one single uh, action a person does, only one single action that a person does, it holds a reward for that individual. One tiny, tiny little thing, but it holds a huge amount of reward or a huge amount of sin in it. And this is something that we also benefit from the hadith. So this concludes our explanation of the first hadith.